HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning. My name is Sarah Weiner, and I'm the director of the Good Food Foundation in San Francisco. And I am thrilled to be here this morning <laughs> uh, with some of my favorite people to kick off a weekend of Good Food events here at Union Market. The Good Food Foundation is best known for organizing the Good Food Awards, which was created to recognize truly good food being made all over America. So we're talking about things that taste incredibly delicious, uh, but are also sustainable and socially responsible in how they're made. And I'm very pleased to say that everyone on this panel who could win a Good Food Award has won a Good Food Award. (laughs) And in some cases, they've won several Good Food Awards. I think you're at about 10, Eli? 12. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Uh, But in any case, uh, they're all at the very top of their field and what they do, and we'll have some great advice and um, insight to share about starting a good food business and running a good food business. If you're intrigued by what you hear, um, both Olympia Provisions and Green Plicity have pop-ups here in the market today and tomorrow, and they are joined by a couple other of the good food producers we work with, including Enzo Olive Oil, which makes Good Food Award-winning delicious olive oil from California, um, and in Couchette, which makes some beautiful confections. Um, So, oh, yes, and if you are a retailer, a journalist, or a chef, please come back tomorrow for the biggest event of the weekend where all of these folks will be joined by 80 of their peers from around the country um, to taste their food and meet with them. It's our sort of version of a a trade show that's intimate and um, very delicious. Now, I get to introduce one of my favorite people who doesn't make food, uh, but what he lacks in uh, professional credentials, he makes up for with uh, avid curiosity, as well as very vocal opinions. Um, And most people know Zeke Emanuel as the architect of the Affordable Care Act, um, which is in the news maybe a little bit lately, Um, but I know him uh, more for his love of chocolate. Uh, He was a Good Food Awards judge for us this year. And I also know him as someone who stands up and shows up for what he believes in. And lucky for us, one of those things is good food. Um, So thank you, Zeke, so much for being here this morning. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, So I want to welcome all of you and thank you for uh, coming out at this early morning uh, for this wonderful panel. Um, Before that, I'm supposed to say a word or two about uh, why I'm interested in good food. Uh, Sarah did mention that I worked on the Affordable Care Act, but actually one of the things I'm most proud of uh, in my uh, two years in the White House was working on the First Lady's uh, Let's Move initiative. Um, And I always thought that, you know, the Affordable Care Act dealt with health care, but the Let's Move initiative dealt with uh, prevention and uh, public health and getting people so that they needed less health care. Um, and it was uh, 
incredibly eye-opening experience just thinking about how you get the whole country focused on things like good food uh, and exercise um, and the challenges that that presents. Uh, but I think one of the great achievements of the First Lady's focusing a spotlight on this uh, is that the country has turned a corner. Uh, many years ago, a, uh, uh, one of the great chefs uh, or cookbook writers, I think, uh, in, in this country said that, uh, um, you know, what the United States gave to cooking was the tin can. Um, that's a horrible reputation. Uh, but what's happened certainly over the last decade or so in the United States, probably 20 years, uh, uh, starting uh, in many different places, is the fact that the United States is finally taking food and good food seriously. Um, and I like to say the moment the United States takes something seriously, we really do it. And we become the best in the world at whatever we take seriously because there's just a huge amount of creativity, ingenuity, uh, entrepreneurial spirit in the country. And then it just focuses it, itself on whatever it is. And food is going through that transformation uh, at the moment. And our panelists are really embodying uh, the cutting edge of that change where we are going to be the food destination in the world uh, uh, shortly because it really is uh, the case that we just knock it out of the park when we uh, focus. And it's uh, everything from, you know, great olive oils, great charcuterie, great cheeses um, to chocolate. So one of the things that uh, Sarah mentioned is I do have a passion for chocolate. And three years ago, Something like three years ago, I was at the Good Food Awards um, and uh, uh, met a chocolatier there. And we have hooked up together and decided that we're going to make the world's best chocolate, right? Why compromise? Why try to make the world's second best chocolate? You want to make the best chocolate. Um, so we are in this, this summer, we're working on making the world's best chocolate. With, we're going to Madagascar to get beans from Madagascar. And then we are going to play around with the beans and figure out how to make the absolute uh, best chocolate and roll out a uh, special limited edition uh, chocolate bar. Uh, hopefully the beans from Madagascar will be great and they'll fulfill all of the goals that everyone on this panel uh, and obviously you share, which is you want it to be sustainable, you want to actually have the workers who work with you uh, have a living wage and do well uh, by it, you want it to be environmentally uh, sensitive and you want it to be outstandingly high-quality, great food. All right, so that's my chocolate bar, and maybe next year when you come back, uh, we'll have samples of that chocolate bar uh, for you. But we're here for people who've done it. I'm just a uh, pretender uh, in this uh, game. What we're going to do is hear from uh, a few minutes from each of them about their particular uh, uh, food element and uh, um, what they've done and a little bit about their path. Then I am going to ask them a few questions, and then we're going to open it up to some Q&A from you. All right. We're going to start at that end. Cool. So, Eli Cairo, I'm going to say two words about you, okay, and you'll correct me when I get it wrong. And I have this cheat sheet, so I know I'm right. Great. So, uh, Eli is a first-generation Greek-American. Uh, he hangs out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Olympia Provisions is his company, uh, and he makes charcuterie. His path is a little meandering. He went to Switzerland, was an apprentice, became a, uh, uh, worked as a chef there, uh, and then came back to this country and began making family recipes. Did I get that right? Some of them, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And as you heard, he is like a super Good Food Awards winner for his <laughs> artisanal charcuterie. So, Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. I love being here. Uh, yeah, I opened up uh, Olympia Provisions in 2009 as a one-man USDA meat plant connected to a restaurant where my three business partners got together and opened up a small little deli restaurant right next to it. Uh, my goal was to bring, you know, very delicious charcuterie to America like I learned how to make in my apprenticeship, but I also wanted it to be extremely genuine, super transparent, work directly with farmers and do everything that I felt like I needed to do. Um, <clears throat> That was really, 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 really difficult. I often say to do that, to start that up, you need equal doses of being super naive, 
super optimistic, super able to work without any sleep because you're so scared everything is going to go out, and an unbelievable amount of hard work. And then luck. And that's where the Good Food Awards is the perfect segue. In 2009, uh, I gave out, unbeknownst to me, my sister sent to the Good Food Awards four <laughs> salamis. And I was still working by only employees, scrubbing the floors, cleaning it, butchering all my meat, working with the USDA, and all four of my products won. I fly to San Francisco. They do this amazing marketplace in the, the ferry building. And there I meet Sam from Byright. They sample my products. I meet a few of my other, you know, Whole Foods started talking to me, all these things. You know, I lied, said I knew what I was doing, act bigger, <laughs> act bigger than I thought I was, and came back to Portland, Oregon, opened up my second meat plant, kept producing my product, opened my third meat plant, and where we're at right now in a quick story is Olympia Provisions operates five restaurants, uh, a 40,000 square foot meat plant, 17 farmers markets a week, uh, two mobile hot dog carts, and I employ 200 people now. <laughs> Thank you. It's very, very nice. Um, but I honestly can't tell you how important the Good Food Awards has been for me. They're just the only voice out there that are really talking about not only making delicious products, but making very genuine products that need to be talked about. Um, and that's kind of what I do. Thanks Great. for having me. Pass the microphone one. So Sarah Gordon... Uh, is uh, the Sarah Gordon of Gordy's Pickles. Uh, for those of you who are in D.C., you know Gordy's Pickles. They've been around since 2011, uh, making all sorts of pickled products, um, and uh, we all love them. And you make your pickled products not very far from here, right? That's right. Just said Petworth, right about five miles away. Um, well, that was a hard act to follow. He's clearly taking over the world. Um, we're taking over D.C., trying to at least. Uh, so we started in 2011, me and my partner and now wife, uh, Sheila Fain, um, and we wanted to bring great pickles to the district. Um, we were eating really great pickles from San Francisco and Portland, um, and we thought there was a void here, so we started to preserve, and here we are today. Um, we won our first Good Food Award shortly um, after we started, and we... All of our success goes to the Good Food Awards. <laughs> Great. Shanika McLeod uh, is the co-founder, or the founder of Greenplicity, and Greenplicity uses uh, food-grade uh, ingredients to make personal care products. So you can eat their personal care products. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd recommend it, but that's the goal. Yeah, definitely don't recommend eating the food, pro the personal care products. They were not formulated for taste, so if you get one, don't eat it. I have had people eat it, though. Um, but yeah, we were started in 2012, and I actually came up with the idea for the company after the birth of my first daughter. Um, she was basically just sucking on everything. Her fingers, her toes, my fingers, not my toes. Um... <laughs> But I was very, very paranoid about the personal care products. And I remember um, I was sent home. I was in the hospital, and this is probably what triggered it to begin with. But the nurse told me, well, you can put the lotion on her body, but don't put it on her hands. And I asked the nurse, I said, well, why not? And she's like, well, because of the stuff that's in it. And I'm like, well, why is it in the, the little box that they give you next to the, you know, bassinet? Why would you even have this in here for a newborn? And so it just, you know, that always resonated with me. And I remember bringing her home, and I would never put lotion on her, her hands or anything that she was sucking on. Um, and so the second thing that happened for me was I was out shopping with my mom and someone admiring how cute the baby was. They touched her hands. She's about four months old, and I freaked out. And I'm looking at my mom, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I supposed to clean her hands with? I only have hand sanitizer in my purse. What do I do? And so um, I remember going home the same day, and I'm Googling for edible skincare products for my child, and I could not find them. And I'm pretty good with Google. I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I feel like I can pat myself on the back with that one. But I was really shocked when I couldn't find personal care products that were edible. Um, so I just decided to make them. Um, that's basically what I did. I got in the kitchen and I just started putting stuff together and it was really 
trial and error for a very long time, um, but it's a labor of love. I love everything that I do, and it's just been a blessing. So I met Danielle, and I'm here for the Good Food Awards this weekend, and I'm really excited. And if you guys have an opportunity, I'll be at the pop-up down the way, and please come by and sample the product. Uh, so Danielle Vogel uh, is a fourth-generation grocer, um, and she has uh, Glenn's uh, grocery Garden Market. Uh, there's one not too far uh, from here, uh, and she's committed to sourcing locally and sustainable uh, grocery. Thank you. Um, so, yes, I'm a fourth-generation grocer, but it was never my intention to open a grocery store. I spent 10 years on Capitol Hill. Um, trying to pass climate change legislation. So we know how that turned out, right? Um, and when the constituency of Congress changed and it became very clear that there was sort of no palette at all for legislative progress, uh, I opened a grocery store about it. So specifically, Glens Garden Market exists to make incremental climate change progress one bite at a time by selling good food from close by and creating and growing partnerships with vendors who treat their land, their animals, and their ingredients with respect. So what that means is we ask a lot of questions, right? So we want to make sure that the producers that we're working with are invested in their communities and their workforce. We want to make sure that they are mindful of sustainability, that they consider seasonality when they're making their decisions about what to create. Um, and the result is that we are collectively working to displace demand for industrially produced food or to kick the crap off the shelves, right? Because the idea is that if we work with small producers and we help them achieve economies of scale, then eventually they can bust their way into kind of the real grocery stores. And when they do that, they're displacing the stuff that was there before, that was less mindfully made, that wasn't necessarily values-driven. And so... Um, one of our values is that we grow small businesses along with our own to that end. So in the four years that we've been open, we have launched 68 local food businesses, meaning, yeah, we've given 68 food entrepreneurs their first chance on our shelves. Uh, of those 68, 37 of those companies are owned by women. Um, Anne is one of them. Shanika is another one of them. Um, and 49 of those products are produced within the District of Columbia. Right. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is that we also sell beer for $4. So if none of that's interesting to you, I'll see you at the bar. All right. Ann Yang is a co-founder of uh, Misfit Juicery, and there's some of her juice over there. Uh, I think we're... And, and uh, part of what they do is to take the ugly f uh, fruits and vegetables that aren't sold other ways and not just have them not used, but put them to good, healthy use. Thank you. Um, first of all, we're so grateful to be part of the panel. We're babies. We just started two years ago and admire so many people in this panel so much that I decided to wear the same outfit as Sarah because I'm a huge fan girl. And Danielle has been our like earliest mentor and is one of our investors. So very grateful to be here. Um, but I'm the co-founder of Misfit Juicery. And what we do is we buy ugly fruits and vegetables and scrap waste up and down the value chain that would otherwise not make it to market because it's the wrong size, shape, or color to be sold at retail. And we purchase it at a market price and we turn it into cold-pressed juice so it doesn't end up in the landfill. And the reason why this is important is because every year in the United States, 20 billion pounds of fruits and vegetables go unharvested or unsold. And wasted food costs us $218 billion every year. It takes up 21% of our landfill volume, 18% of our arable land, and 25% of our freshwater resources. And it's all driven by retailer and consumer perception of what is a good quality product. So we're rejecting apples that have too small circumferences. We're rejecting carrots with two legs. We're rejecting scrap waste, which is the most nutritious part of the vegetable when we're creating things like carrot sticks and watermelon cubes. So we're creating a value chain amongst small, medium-sized producers. And our social mission is twofold, right? One, operationally, we're trying to solve this food waste problem through purchasing power. So we're purchasing it from small, medium-sized producers, giving them a fair price for their products. And then on a cultural side, we're trying to change people's perceptions of what waste is and how they look at the food system. So the reason why we're called Misfit is because we want people to think about agricultural misfits, but also to think about difference and diversity in an interesting way. 
So we started two years ago in a very unsexy way as full-time college students with four crates of ugly peaches and a blender that I borrowed from a woman I babysat for, and it was a total hot mess. Um, and today we distribute in the Northeast. Our main uh, markets are D.C. and New York City, including Glen's Garden Market, which we launched, which, which we're so proud, and Blue Hillstone Barns, which was voted the best restaurant in America. We have national partnerships with The Economist. We just launched um, in kegs that we work, and we're using, really trying to use our products as a platform. So like the two fundamental things that we believe in as a brand is that one, entrepreneurship is about learning how to build a community well. And I think that oftentimes the story that is told in press is that it's like one founder, usually white and male, disrupting the world with their idea. And for us, like Misfit has been built about upon like a thousand favors of people we love, and we really believe in that. That's about investing in the people in your own company and in your community. And like this is a really shitty deal from a lifestyle perspective if you're not like making good friends <laughs> along the way. So we really much believe that. And two, like products are platforms. And as he explains, like food is a universal access point. It's more than about the three meals that you're putting in on your table. It's about climate change. It's about conflict. And it fundamentally matters from a like a social and cultural political lens. And we believe that every social issue is the most interesting when you look at it through the lens of food. And that's what we're trying to do as a brand. Thanks. Great. So... First of all, I have to say, um, uh, I have a huge amount of admiration for all of these people, in part because I find the idea of being uh, a small business without a safety net beneath you, working your heart out, super scary. And the fact that you guys have all succeeded, uh, totally amazing. So I think it's just really admirable to the character and to the perseverance and passion of you all. I wanted to ask each of you, what was the biggest surprise in your journey uh, to get your product out there, to launch it, uh, to go on? What did you not expect that sort of popped up? Any of you? Uh, I know it sounds super naive, but how quickly... <laughs> um, the, how responsible you have to be for everything really quick. That sounds super naive, but all of a sudden you get livelihoods that you obviously have to be responsible. You have no safety net like you, talk, you touched on earlier. And when times get tight, you can't compromise on what you believe in. And so that, to me, happened like that. The second you get people needing a paycheck, and then you get vendors wanting a price deal, and then you got farmers you need to support, I mean, that comes out of the gate. And if you're like me, how you started, you don't have any money. You better sell it to make it. And boy, did that hit in a hurry. But that was very surprising. <laughs> Anyone else? I think the biggest surprise for me was basically the education part of it. Because there are a lot of people that don't know um, about, they don't even look at the back of the bottle before they put the product on their bodies. And your skin is absorbing 60% of whatever you're putting on it. So it's going right into your bloodstream and you're putting chemicals right into your bloodstream. And so it's amazing to me just how many people don't know what they're putting on their bodies. And so it's been a huge educational process for me um, and learning myself, but also educating the people that I interact with, um, the vendors that I talk to or the retailers that I speak with, and just telling them, you know, it's important. It's not anything that you should shy away from or turn a blind eye to because ultimately it does affect our health. I mean, how many products do you put on your body every single day? There's a lotion, there's a soap, there's a moisturizer for your face. There's, I mean, there's specific things, but if you look at the back, and I encourage all of you to go home and do that. Look at the back of your skincare products and see what's in your products. And I guarantee you, half of what you see, you don't even know what it is. So it's important. Um, so running a grocery store with 95 millennial employees is a very different prospect than showing up to Capitol Hill every day. Um, so lots of surprises on a regular basis about that. Um, but I have to say the most wonderful surprise was how uh, the community absolutely embraced us. So at the beginning, it's a very, it, it, take my word for it, it's a real different thing to shop for a grocery store than it is to shop at a grocery store, right? And then to layer on top of that the mission constraints that we've applied to our product mix select, obviously. Um, so uh, there was a time early on when we didn't have that much to sell in the room. 
Um, and we didn't have very many customers, so that was okay. Um, and then there was a moment that that, that that kind of started to change. And we had more, more customers, we call them neighbors, more neighbors walking through the doors. Um, and I remember it very vividly because when that moment as an entrepreneur, when you go from like sure failure to the possibility of success, you don't forget when that happens. It was January 6th of 2014 for us. Um, and so people started to walk through the doors. And there was a regular neighbor of ours who came to Glenn's every day. She came twice a day. And she comes up to me during this week, our first busy week we'd ever had. Um, and she was like, Danielle, did you guys move the eggs again? And I was like, we didn't, we didn't move the eggs. I'm mortified to say I'm still a total rookie. We didn't order enough eggs. We've never had this many neighbors in the store. We are out of eggs. Not a great look for a grocery store. And instead of being like, that's so annoying. Now I have to go to Whole Foods. She, her face lit up and she starts clapping and she goes, we're so busy. <laughs> That was really cute. Yeah. I think one of the most surprising things is I feel like the lesson that I've learned over and over again is that the most interesting like calculation you have to make is like when do you follow the rules and when do you break them? So it's like a really interesting like learning map and like learning the food industry, learning how it works and seeing other big players and that that's how like we're successful and like the internal calculations like okay like that's when I'm going to follow the system and like when do I like just decide that I'm going to try to overthrow the system? And like those choices have come at very surprising times for us and they happen all the time. But I think that that calculation of like, okay, am I part of the system or do I try to change it is like something that small business entrepreneurs face all the time. Yeah, I think the biggest surprise for us was um, if you make a really great product and you're making good food and it's thoughtful and sustainably produced, how um, willing the community is to get around it and how easy it is to sell to retailers. Um, you know, we didn't know where it was going to go with Gordy's, but we just started to knock on people's door, have them taste our pickles, um, and it kind of was an easy sell. And it was because we were making such a great product and we're still today making such a great product. So I think if you're putting out a great product and you love what you do and you're passionate about it, it it's not so hard to sell. Maybe I can ask uh, this question, which is almost all of you have gone from one-man shows, two-man shows, two-woman shows, uh, to now having a large number of employees. Uh, what's that transition like, going basically from solo to being a business? Want me to start with that? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, no, it's, it's obviously very exciting. It's very, very rewarding to be able to employ people. And with that comes an amazing amount of responsibility. I've, I've always done it, and I've been very fortunate with the people that, I, that work with me, is that we've led by showing that we're going to do what we say. You know, we've always kind of tried to inspire them. Whenever we're going to source or we're, you know, where there's those options to buy cheaper pork, commodity pork, we don't do that. We double down. We support the farmers. We're making sure we're doing it. If I say we're going to put this product out, we do that. And our employees really, really rally behind us when we do that. They love to see that, and then they're, they're, they're proud to work for us. I love that they walk around Portland and Oregon, and they're like, no, we work for Olympia Provisions. We're making a damn change. You know, that, that feels good, and then they stay with us. So it's great. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I think that oh, do, do you want to, okay. I think that um, when you start working, when you work by yourself or alone, you get to do everything. And then when you bring people on, you don't necessarily want to say, okay, well, this is your job, this is your job, that's what you do, and I am up here. I think that you get a better sense of what it takes to make things run smoothly and you aren't above anyone else you work on the same level with everyone else it doesn't matter if you founded the company or if you're the person that's just stocking the boxes on the shelf it doesn't matter because I can stock a box I can you know do the social media I can do so you learn how to do every facet of the job and it's important that you know every facet so um, so this is definitely an area where I face the most amount of imposter syndrome. And the reason is I'm 23. I just graduated in 2016. 
I have no job experience like, or experience in anything. I can't even rent a car legally, which is dumb. We don't have a lot enough credit history to get a credit card for our business, which is so dumb. Like, there are many, many issues, but we're 10 people at Misfit, and our production team is hired in partnership with two nonprofits, DC Central Kitchen and Jubilee Jobs. And part of our mission is to provide employment opportunities to those who would otherwise face structural barriers to employment. And I think from a cultural standpoint, like, what that means is that as managers, like, we are the support, we're the support team. Like, they're the stars of the show, and we're the support team. And, like, on a corporate level, like, when we have five people in corporate, it's, like, we're the spotters of the production team, and that's it. Like, we're their support team, and that's culturally how we feel. Like, it's, like, our job to support them, and it's, like, not a hierarchy. Um, And then also, like, I'm going through this right now. Like, we just hired a full-time salesperson with six years of beverage sales experience. He's 30 years old. And I was like, dude, like, I, like, you're the star of the show. Like, let me know how I can help you. Like, I'm your point of, I'm your direct report, but, like, let's do this together. And for us, it's very much, like, how can we, like, stand side by side as opposed to face to face from a managerial perspective? But in complete honesty, like, this is something that we're learning right now. And I was, like, trying to figure out yesterday as I was, like, onboarding the salesperson. I was, like, looking at my co-founder phone. I was, like, what do I say to him? Like, he's 30 years old and comes from, like, the big, like, he has, like, six years of beverage experience, like, at a big corporate company and a small little company. Like, we hired him because he's way smarter than us. And we don't know what we're doing. So any pro tips in the audience, please let me know. (laughs) Um, So... When we started Glenn's almost four years ago, it'll be four years ago in a couple of weeks, um, it was me and this kid right here, Will, our chef, like the brilliant, the brilliant force behind Glenn's pastrami and everything else you've ever tasted out of the building. Um, and we, it takes like a really humble combination of grit and sheer force of might to go from two to a hundred. Um, but beyond that, it, it takes a lot of identification of uh, culture and communication of culture. So when we were starting the business, we did a lot of work creating a set of values that were going to define the environment and the experience you have in the space. And it wasn't just about customers. It was about how we interacted with each other, how we interacted with our vendors. Um, And so we have 11 company values. um, And uh, every single day before we start the day and before we start the evening, uh, we share with our staff sort of a recitation of the values. So everybody either shares one of the values or they share an anecdote for how they've lived one of the values or seen a colleague live one of the values. And so we head into service every single day really connected to why we do what we do and what makes us special. Um, And that um, sort of entrenchment of the culture um, is the key to making sure that when you grow, you're growing mindfully and in a way that's really consistent with what uh, you started for in the first place. All right. I, I want to ask uh, two more questions, and then we're going to open it up to the audience. Uh, one question, uh, which I think uh, small producers get all the time, is why is your stuff so expensive? Um, uh, you know, twenty-five dollars for you know a pound of cheese just seems crazy. Um, and then you know, I'm just looking at the chocolate side of it, the things. I was like. Well, you know, $15 a bar just seems like not enough money to actually make the bar you want to make. So how does, where's the pricing and what's the challenge there for you? Uh, yeah, so I mean, like, I think it's like two issues. One is like when you treat people well, you're going to pay them. So when you source your ingredients well and you pay your employees well, that's going to translate into the cost of food. I think in the United States, statistically speaking, we are used to paying extremely low prices for food because of subsidies. And so our price sensitivity is much, much higher. Um, I think that like one really interesting way to think about this is um, in terms of local food, one thing that's really interesting is that Obviously, local and organic food is more expensive than conventional grocery food on a pound-for-pound basis. But if you measure the nutrition level of like a conventional carrot versus a carrot that is um, grown through regenerative agriculture or locally, the nutrition per an ounce is actually higher. So then the price is actually lower. So like it's also like changing our frameworks of like how we're measuring price and nutrition and like thinking about what's in our food. I also think it's about economies of scale. Like, we're all small producers. I think that, like, when we do our financial mapping, like, if you go into contract packaging or if we build a larger uh, facility or if we get sign a large national contract, like, our volumes increase and our prices decrease. And that's sort of the goal, right? It's, like, to make good food available for more people. But it's, like, fundamentally challenging from an operational level. When you're operating on a small scale, you're trying to p- pay above minimum wage wages for your employees. And you're trying to pay farmers, like, fair pricing for their product. Like, of course, that's going to affect the SRP. 
Luckily, we have a consumer base that I think is like becoming more and more knowledgeable about that and ready to put their dollars and invest it in the good food space. And I like believe that we're really at an inflection point, right? Like you have all these good food companies rising. They're taking on the big guys. And as we achieve economy of scale, like we will be able to like through the laws of economics, bring our price points down and make it accessible to more people. But it all comes from increasing demand. Like the more that consumers who are like financially privileged invest their dollars in good food, the more demand there is and the faster that we can achieve those volume breaks to make our food more available to more people. Can, can I ask a specific part of that question is how much is the production part and how much is the distribution part as a challenge to the cost where you're a small producer and distributing it to lots of places just eats up a huge amount. Sarah wants to... Uh... So um, if you could... So we just won a Good Food Award for our sweet pepper relish. And if you saw the way, if you came to our production kitchen and you saw the way that we make the sweet pepper relish, you're going to be like, it's only $10. This jar should be like $25. We hand crank every single ingredient. And that's why you get the best texture, the crunchiest relish. Um, it's because of the way that we make it. So it's really an economies of scale thing. As soon as we are able to figure out a way to make it as delicious um, in a more efficient way, then we'll probably be able to bring the price down. Um, so it, it definitely, for us, um, comes down to just how many jars that we can make a day the way that we're currently producing. All right. So the, the, you wanted to ask what's more different or what's more difficult, production or distribution? Yeah. Uh, for me personally, I think uh, production. You know, for me, the, the distribution has been done in America. You can buy that. You know what I mean? You can pay an extra value and get, well, you can overnight my product to here if I would like. But making a handmade product, I'm sure we, you have to teach yourself. Nobody here, I'm sure there's nothing that's been laid out in front of you that shows exactly how to do it. So to me, distribution is easy. All right. If there's one change in the system you could make that would make it easier, better, uh, more efficient for you, what would that be? That's a good question. Uh, I've got a magic wand. Yeah, the, the magic wand would be to uh, make every single label out there completely transparent and really somehow oh, show. I mean, you said you had the wand, you know. <laughs> I, when I was in the White House, this is something we worked on because we worked on changing the food pyramid to the plate. And we were working on the label and what should be on a label. It is a challenging issue. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I, I, I still remember... One of my retailers, of course, I don't need to say them, that they, we were haggling about price. And I was going into what was in my price. It's an inevitable thing that happens when you get to, you know, we're buying X amount, you owe me a deal. And I was like, but I just told you this beautiful story about this farm I changed, et cetera, et cetera. And he looked at me and dead in the eye and he's like, hey, Eli, you're no longer that company. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm no longer that company. I'm that company till the day I die or I'm not doing this. And then he's like, what he meant, though, was my package that everything I do that I care about is right next to a $7 package that looks just as pretty that is exactly what it is. So I pointed to the Good Food Award on it and was like, look at that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Anyone else? The magic wand? Do you have I think um, if you could do the magic wand, I think it would be for uh, to, I don't know, somehow get consumers to understand what it costs to make really great food. Because it's not easy and it's not cheap. Yeah. Um, for me, honestly, if if you could eliminate people's desire to compare us to our conventional counterparts uh, and understand the value proposition that we're offering, it would make our lives a lot easier. Um, because they have this perception that we're more expensive, but it's because we're only selling sustainably sourced small batch food that most of the time is walking through the front doors in the arms of the person that made it. Right, so some, when somebody walks to the grocery store and says this is so expensive, it's like relative to which other sustainably motivated all local grocery store that you shop at. <laughs> you know, it's it's like nutty. And uh, we made a decision over the summer that uh, it was important that we pay a living wage to every single person that works at our company. So we had to fund it, um, and so we took one of our menu items and we raised the price by ninety nine cents because we thought it was important for the person making the sandwich to be able to afford to buy the sandwich. And people freaked out. Wow. We went from selling 1000 a week to 300 99 cents. Over 99 cents. 
But is that not the perfect microcosm? It's like, if there is a value proposition that's so out of whack because of subsidies and commercial food production, um, and our little guys haven't achieved economies of scale, they can't compete in that marketplace. So they can kind of only compete in our marketplace. But if people aren't buying off of our shelves, we cannot continue to help them achieve economies of scale. Um, my two answers are more long-term. One, like, get more women in food. Like, cross the board. Like, it's the most ironic space because I think that it's, like, a, like, patriarchally, like, women are kept in the kitchen. But, like, it's dominate, like, di food distribution is the mafia. It's, like, all white men. So, like, we need more women in food, number one. Number two, like, we need to teach people how to farm. Like, the median age of a farmer in this country is 65. Like, people as, like... This is bad. Like, it's really, really bad, like, on a food system level. And, like, if we don't have people who know how to produce food, like, the consolidation of the system is inevitable. And it's already happening. And, like, we're fucked. Like, and us as producers are, like, super fucked, like, if we don't have young people who understand how to farm and grow food. Like, it's really bad. Yeah. yeah I think the magic wand would just be education. I mean, I just feel like it's just... it's. The reason that we all sit here and we're so passionate about what we do and we're, we're on this panel is because we've educated ourselves and we know what's sustainable, what's healthy. And I feel like it's just, it needs to be wider spread with the education. People need to understand that healthy sometimes does equate more expensive and it's a good choice. Sometimes it's more important to choose your health than your, your wallet. So um, I think that people just need to educate themselves, and I feel like that's what we're here to do. We're, we're helping to educate our community and the people around us, and hopefully in the future making a change in the long run. So. What a great... Uh, so we're going to go to your questions, um, and uh, raise your hand, and speak up. Stand up, and you have to be loud because I have noise here coming into my... So the question is how to close the gap, it's a long time Glenn's uh, Garden Market uh, fan, how to close the gap between coming in for the first time and understanding the mission of the store. Um, first of all, thank you for supporting what we do. Um, this answer makes uh, no sense to anybody with a profit motive. What we do is we take a hit on the margin. So we artificially make these products appear cost competitive. So in any other store, everything on our shelves would be the highest price point in the category. So we have to create a false perception of, of price choice. So what we do is we just actively don't make money doing this, to be honest. So it's all about the beers uh, <laughs> and the sandwiches. Um, but we are in this to displace demand for industrially produced food and grow small businesses along with our own. We can't grow them if nobody buys the products. So we compel people to buy the products by selling them for less than you can find them elsewhere and less than they're, frankly, less than they're worth. Um, because the idea is once they use these products and they taste these juices, uh, they'll understand the value proposition. And they'll come back for more. And when they come back for more, these guys are able to buy in bigger quantity, bring their costs down, and then eventually we get to bring the prices down. To add a statistic in there, a healthy grocery store in this country is making a margin of 0.5 to 1%. It's nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Which, like, shows you why grocery stores don't build in food deserts. Because, like, it financially, like, does not make sense. Like, 0.5 to 1%. That's, like, the consolidation of economies. Yeah. Stand up. Yeah. Great question. Comment, how do you connect with them to get them to make better decisions that will impact you in the community? Do you have a policy arm, branch? How do you do that? Maybe so the question is, uh, you live in a city uh, like Washington, D.C., which has a lot of policy outlets, uh, but also what you're doing is not just uh, changing people, but actually trying to change policy. Sure. Uh, yeah. 
uh, gosh, it's actually, this is, a, this is a true story. It actually came from Sarah two years ago. Uh, she introduced me to a gentleman that was finishing his master's degree at Yale in forestry. His name was Will. He's brilliant. I wish he was here. Anyways, uh, he, he came in. <laughs> he uh, he came and did a full sustainable audit on my practices. He, uh, you know, I came and made him look at my restaurants, how I was sourcing, and then after the summer of going around to every farm and every rancher, he reported back to us what we were doing to kind of make sure that we weren't hurting or doing <laughs> what it was. My sister and I did a big gut check, went to our business partner, said this is what we have to do. You know, our bigger picture is you know we're having a wiener farm. That is when sows take pigs and we and he's doing the gleaming from all the grocery stores. We're putting that next to our slaughterhouse and we're going to convince the cattle ranchers to start free ranging our wieners on their port, or excuse me, on their ranches. That's all beautiful, but that wouldn't have gone anywhere until we went to EcoTrust in Portland, Oregon. It's kind of like a nonprofit amazing group. And then in two weeks, I get to propose this entire thing directly to the governor himself. So yes, I mean, I, it, it, it's a long path to get there, but you got to make the, the big change. You just got to clearly map out what your vision is, and, and it's, that's very And you have no vice president of uh, government relations, I take it. In my house, or in us, yeah, my sister and I being like, does that make sense? No. Ah, let's try it. <laughs> we, um, so Glenn's exists because I gave up on Congress, right? I just decided there was no possible way. There was no palette for it. Um, and uh, I was coming off like an absolutely crushing defeat of our climate change bill. And the bill failed because of semantics. It was labeled a jobs killing energy tax, like health of the planet and the people on it be damned, right? Um, and so I was very timid about expressing in an authentic way the reasons why we were starting the store because I wasn't going to then take a totally different tact and fail for the same reasons. So you guys are hearing why we exist, but if you're in the space, you don't know. You don't see it. It's not on our walls. We don't tell that story. Because I thought it would be so great to see my former conservative Republican colleagues from the Senate drinking beer at my bar making progress, despite themselves, right? I thought that was, like, awesome. And I got a kick out of it for a couple of years. Um, and then uh, in January, stuff got real weird in this town. Bad in this town. And it occurred to me that it was time to stop hiding um, and time to start proclaiming. So, you know, Glenn's obviously we source locally and sustainably. We only use the most energy efficient equipment that's available. When it gets to the store, we retrofit it to make it more energy efficient. We compost. We have a no waste mandate. We don't use any paper or plastic bags. I mean, it's literally absolutely everything. Um, and we founded the store on Earth Day of 2013, obviously, right? Um, and so we turned for this Earth Day. Um, and instead of throwing uh, a party about a little piece of what we do, this year we decided that for Earth Day birthday, we are throwing ourselves a climate change coming out party. Yes where we will finally like sort of proclaim to the world like if you need a safe space, if you need to make tangible progress to manually advance the mission, to make progress one bite at a time, this is the space to do it. And it's as easy as seriously like drinking a beer or picking a jar of jelly because any, any way you engage with our space is progressive. Um, and I think that people right now, me for God's sakes especially, need to feel like we can make forward progress despite everything else that's happening in this town. Um, and we honestly believe that there's a, there's a damn good chance that the sum total of all climate progress made in the next four years will be made within our four walls. So we're, like, real committed to making a lot of it. Um, amazing work. Um, for, like, I think that we believe that small brands, like, the best way they can do this is through partnerships and through managing and building stakeholdership in the space. So we do this in a very minimal way right now, but it is in sort of like our larger strategic plan for how we do this better. But ReFed is like the biggest organization that is doing research on food waste right now. And we, um, I think that like when you're a small food business, it's like, oh, who else is in the space? We've in very intentionally um, built relationships with people who are looking at food waste on an academic level and like highlighting their work through content marketing. And we were at the first congressional hearing on food waste ever, which was awesome. It was amazing to see these small businesses there and for um, in front of Congress refed to quote all of the small business working on food waste issues, which is amazing. And I think that a model that we think is really amazing is Sweetgreen. So Sweetgreen is the fast casual salad shop and they've done a really 
amazing job at this by thinking about how they invest in field marketing on a local level. So when they do community field marketing, they think about like who's in their space and who they can partner with. And like one of the most amazing programs they do is Sweet Green in Schools, where they're taking Sweet Green into DC public schools and educating on food. And so I really, if you see sort of like the common thread between all of this, it's like as a private brand, like how can you partner with the public and build goodwill to sort of like um, essentially like provide knowledge when these decisions are being made. Yeah. Great. All right. Last question in the back there. Um, so the question was about the WeWork Creator Award. So WeWork is a co-working space, and they're taking over the world and the country right now. And they just started this initiative called the Creator Awards, where over the next nine months, they're giving away $20 million to small businesses and nonprofits and organizations in a five-city tour. Their inaugural kickoff was in D.C., and they gave away $1.5 million in cash to small businesses in D.C., and it was incredible. Um, we have been working with WeWork. Our juice is on tap in all the D.C. offices, and we're doing a rollout this month. I was actually just at the WeWork headquarters 48 hours ago. I got on a train from New York City. I'm back from, like, last night at, like, 11 p.m. Um, what I will say about WeWork is that it's an amazing company, and we totally drank the Kool-Aid of WeWork. Um, and I think that, like what, like, what I said to WeWork and, like, the people that... At, at HQ was like, listen, guys, like I work in the hospitality industry. You guys do hospitality better than anyone I know in the hospitality industry. Like the way that they treat people and the way that they treat their community and their larger plan of investing in small businesses and food businesses. Like I walked into WeWork HQ and they had displays of small food companies like on the shelves. <laughs> like they're really believing in building small, like in investing in organizations and creating WeWork at spaces for organizations. And the CEO is an amazing guy, very very inspiring and I think that like what they're doing investing their literal dollars into food companies and other small businesses is changing the landscape of like what it means to be like a big startup in the space great okay uh, I know there are lots of other questions uh, but we're coming to the end here I want to thank our panelists and I want to thank you for coming out and supporting them and uh, make you aware that around here will be a lot of uh, good food award winners uh, doing pop-ups. So thank you very much for a wonderful way to start a good Saturday morning. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>